Bill Browder, welcome to the Free Tanky podcast. I'm so happy to be here. We're just publishing your <coughs> new book in Swedish. It's called Tsaren in Sweden in Swedish about your your fight against the corruption of Russia or or or, or Putin's uh, money uh, laundering activities, right? Yeah, so it's um uh it's a book all about getting justice mm. <clears throat> from the murder of my lawyer Sergey Magnitsky who was killed his Russian lawyer who was killed in police custody after he exposed a government corruption scheme and for the last 13 years since he he was murdered uh I've made it my life's work to go after the people that killed him and and this book is all about the different ways I tried to get justice for him and all the ways that Putin and his cronies tried to stop me from getting justice. Yeah. But uh, tell me, I mean, you you worked in Russia for quite a few years, right? So before that. So yes, yeah, so basically my my story is that I moved to Moscow in 1996 to set up an investment fund called the Hermitage Fund. Uh it grew to become the largest investment fund in the country. The assets or the companies that I invested in uh turned out to be really um not what i thought mm-hmm. the big big companies like gasprom and luke oil and sergo neftogas were basically um piggy banks for the oligarchs who were running them and even if i owned 1% of the company i didn't get 1% of the profits because 100% of the profits were being stolen out the back door of most of these companies mm-hmm. and um so i decided to try to fight the uh, stealing and the only tool that i really had was to research how they did the the stealing and then share that research with the um financial times and the new york times and the wall street journal when was this well it started in in uh, 1998 and and um it went in in earnest all the way up until about uh 2005 mm-hmm. and for a while these fights were very successful uh mm-hmm. strangely when i first started this process it was basically at the time that Putin had arrived on the scene and Putin was fighting with the same people I was fighting with they were stealing power from him at the same time as they were stealing money from me so you were on the same side in the sense at that time indeed we were totally on the same side yeah and There's, did you ever meet um i never met putin um never spoke to him but we had a total alignment of interests and so when i would publicize one of these scandals uh he would step in and and do something about it mm-hmm. and uh interestingly um it was a very profitable time for for my clients and for me and uh and for Russia uh every time he would cut out one of these uh oligarchs or do something to stop it the share price went up mm-hmm. and and so there's very few jobs you can have in the world where you can make money and do good in the same job but I had one of them uh at least for some period of time. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately um uh, it, it was too good to be true. And Putin ended up winning his war with the oligarchs by arresting the richest oligarch in the country. In um October of 2003 he arrested Mikhail Hordakovsky who was the owner of an oil company called Yukos. Mm-hmm. He arrested him uh off his private jet in Siberia. Um brought him back to Moscow, put him on trial and allowed the television cameras to come into the courtroom and film uh, the richest man in Russia uh, on trial sitting in a cage. Mm. 
And uh, this had a profound effect on the other oligarchs who all came to Putin begging, you know, what do we have to do, Vladimir, so we don't sit in the cage like he did? And Putin said, it's real simple, 50%. Mm. Not 50% for the Russian government or 50% for the presidential administration of Russia, but 50% for Vladimir Putin. Mm. And this was the moment, this was about summer of 2004, that Putin became the richest man in the world. And... Um, and this was the moment that my interests in his diverged. I see. And, and the next year, you were sort of denied entry to the country, right? Well, they were trying to figure out what to do with me. And, and they sort of had three choices. They could either kill me, imprison me, or um, expel me. And this was before Putin has gotten to the, so the stage that he's at right now, where uh, he was just murdering people left, right, and center. And, um, uh, and, and putting me on trial was kind of... Uh, or putting me in, in jail was kind of a make him as much of a hostage to the situation as me, and so the um, uh, the decision they made in in November of two thousand five was um, I was flying back into the country. I was uh, at a weekend trip to London. I arrived at Sheremetyevo Airport uh, VIP lounge in a process that should have taken me sixty seconds. They had me sit there for an hour. I was wondering what why am I sitting here? This always normally takes a minute. And, uh, and then four heavily armed border guards stormed into the VIP lounge, grabbed me, uh, frog marched me down to the detention center of the airport, kept me there overnight. I wasn't sure whether I was being uh, uh, sent to Siberia or expelled. And thankfully, the next morning, they, uh, uh, on a 1045 flight, sent me back to London. Mm. And then subsequently declared me a threat to national security. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, when the Russians turn on you, they don't tend to do so mildly. They usually do with extreme prejudice. And while this was upsetting to me, I, I kind of thought to myself, this is really nothing compared to what they could do. And, and so afterwards, I evacuated all of my staff and their family members. And then we sold everything we held in Russia. And I thought that was the end of the story. Uh, turned out to be not the end of any story, but the start of the worst nightmare you could ever imagine. Yeah, because I, I, I want to understand, because the, um, your lawyer, Sergei Manitsky, was imprisoned quite a few years later, three or four years later, right? So in, I was expelled in November of 2005. Yeah. Uh, 18 months later, in um, June of 2007, uh, I get a frantic call from the one employee I have left in Russia, my secretary, mm. who, who sat in our empty Moscow office. And she said, there's 25 police officers here raiding the office. What should I do? And uh, I called up my lawyer, uh, an American lawyer in Moscow, and I told him what was going on. And he said, I've got 25 police officers raiding my office right now. <laughs> Turned out that they were simultaneous raids, 50 officers in total, raiding the offices, looking for the stamps, seals, and certificates for our investment holding companies. They found them at the law firm's office. They seized them. And the next thing we know, we no longer own our investment holding companies, which at this point were empty because we had sold everything mm. after I was expelled. And so uh, I hired this young lawyer named Sergei Magnitsky. This was uh, June of 2007 to investigate. Mm. And he, um, he investigates and he discovers that the reason uh, that they had raided our offices was that uh, they took our companies, our empty companies, and they went back to the tax authorities 
and they said uh, these companies, which by the way had uh, when we sold everything had declared a profit of a billion dollars, and on the profit paid two hundred thirty million dollars of taxes. They went back to the uh, tax authorities and they said these companies didn't earn a billion dollars of profit. Mm-hmm. They came up with a complicated way of explaining it. Mm-hmm. And they said, therefore, the taxes, the $230 million of taxes that was paid in the previous year uh, was paid in error. And they wanted it back. So they applied for a $230 million illegal tax refund on the 23rd of December, 2007, two days before Christmas. And it was approved and paid out the next day. Mm-hmm. It was the largest tax refund in the history of Russia, paid out in one day. What, how, how could they do that so fast? <laughs> well, obviously, everybody was in on it. They were in on it. Okay, I see. Nice Christmas present for them. Yeah, Christmas <laughs> Eve. So $230 million. You can imagine how good they felt. Mm. $230 million. They, and so, but this wasn't my money that was stolen. This was money that I had paid in taxes to the Russian government that was stolen from the Russian government. From the Russian people, maybe. If exactly. It, if it had been used right. And, and that was Sergei's uh, thought, was that this is outrageous. This is my money. This is my country's money, my mm-hmm. mother's money, my children's mm-hmm. money. Mm-hmm. This isn't their money. And as both as a good lawyer to me and as a patriot of Russia, he thought, we have to stop this. And so we um, wrote criminal complaints to every different law enforcement agency in Russia. And Sergei gave sworn testimony to the Russian State Investigative Committee, which is their equivalent of the FBI. Mm-hmm. Uh, assuming that Putin is a nationalist, he's a patriot, he would sure be shocked if he discovered that this rogue group of, of corrupt officials was stealing all of his money. This is Putin's money, too. But, um, and so we sat back and we waited for the good guys to get the bad guys. Mm-hmm. But it turns out that uh, in Putin's Russia... There are no good guys. And five weeks after uh, Sergei testified against the corrupt officials that were conducting the raid of, of our offices, the same officials arrested him, put him in pretrial detention. And then uh, he was, they started torturing him in prison um, to get him to withdraw his testimony. Uh, they put him in cells with 14 inmates and eight beds and left lights on 24 hours a day to impose sleep deprivation Uh, they put him in cells with um, no heat mm. and no window panes in December in Moscow, so he nearly froze to death. Uh, they put him in cells with um, no toilet, just a hole in the floor where the sewage would bubble up. They moved from cell to cell to cell in the middle of the night. And the purpose of all this was to um, get him to withdraw his testimony against the corrupt police officers. Uh, and they wanted to get him to sign a false confession to say that he had stolen the $230 million dollars. And he did so on my instruction. And they figure, here's a guy wears a blue suit and a red tie and uh, you know, goes to work in a fancy American law firm, buys Starbucks in the morning. You put him in really these ugly conditions in prison, and in a week he'll do whatever they ask him to do. But um, they totally misjudged him. He was a man of incredible integrity. And for him, the idea of perjuring himself and bearing a false witness was more awful than the um, physical pain that they were subjecting him to. And he refused to sign any, any confessions. He refused to withdraw his testimony. And as a result, the um, pressure and the torture got worse and worse and worse. 
And after about six months of this, his health started to break down. He went into um, had terrible stomach pains. He lost 20 kilos. And he was ultimately diagnosed as having pancreatitis and gallstones. And he needed an operation, which was scheduled for the 1st of August, 2009. But um, a week before the operation, they came to him again. They again asked him to sign a false confession. Again, he refused. In retaliation, they moved him from the prison that had a medical wing to a maximum security prison called Butyrka. Butyrka is considered one of the most horrible prisons in Russia. And most significantly for Sergei, at Butyrka, there was no proper medical facilities. Mm. At Butyrka, his health completely broke down. He went into constant agonizing ear-piercing pain. It was a terrible downward spiral. He and his lawyers wrote 20 different desperate requests for medical attention to every different branch of the criminal justice system. Every one of their requests was either ignored or denied in writing. And on the night of November 16, 2009, Sergei Magnitsky went into critical condition. On that night, the Butyrka authorities didn't want to have responsibility for him anymore. And so they put him in an ambulance and sent him across town to a different prison that had a medical wing. When he arrived at this new prison, instead of putting him in the emergency room, they put him in an isolation cell. They chained him to a bed. And eight riot guards with rubber batons came into that cell and beat him until he died. Hmm. That was November 16, 2009, about 13 years ago. Uh, Sergei Magnitsky was 37 years old. He left a wife and two children. And as I understand it, you helped his family to uh, flee out, get out of Russia after that? Um, we got his family out of Russia. It, they didn't want to leave right away. They were sort of shell-shocked and mm. traumatized and not sure what, what to do. But I eventually convinced his wife, his widow, to leave and come to London, where I've taken care of them and the son. Um, uh, but I wanted to make sure that the people who killed him didn't get away with it. Mm. And so you basically devoted your the rest of your life uh, <laughs> to, 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 to that mission. I mean, you, you left your, your old job, your old world, and, and devoted yourself to this instead. It's I, a big leap. I made a vow. It was so I was so traumatized and horrified and guilty for having Sergei put himself in harm's way on my behalf mm. that I I had no choice. I made a vow to his family and to his memory and to myself that I was going to put aside everything else I was doing and go after these people to kill them and make sure they face justice and and that's what I've been doing for the last 13 years. Mm. Where, I mean, where does that strong moral compass come from? Have you had it since you were a child? Have you been sort of aware, morally aware more than most people, you think? <laughs> well, I come from an unusual family. My, uh, my grandfather was a great um, act, uh, justice activist in a totally diff- from a diff- different angle. Uh, he was uh, a labor union organizer during the Great Depression and... Um, he ended up being invited by the uh, communists in uh, 1927 to come to Russia. <laughs> and they said, if you like labor unionism, you're going to love communism. Why don't you come and check it out? And 
And he was an ide- uh, uh, idealistic young man and went there and became the leader of the Communist Party. Now, I don't, communism isn't associated with justice now, but um, at the time, I guess he felt that way. And there, there's some, some, some strange, um, you know, something pumping through our blood. So he was the leader of the American Communist Party? Correct. Okay, okay. He ran for president against Roosevelt on the communist ticket. Wow. Okay. He, uh, in 1936 and 1940, uh, He was imprisoned by Roosevelt in 41, pardoned in 42. He was expelled from the Communist Party in 1945 for, for being too much of a capitalist. <laughs> okay. And then he was persecuted viciously during the 1950s for being a communist. And in so, the McCarthy era. During the McCarthy era. So, yeah. so my, um, this is my family legacy. <clears throat> um, and I'm certainly not a communist. In fact, I just did the opposite. I, I became a capitalist in rebellion to this mm-hmm. family of mine and, and – mm-hmm. uh, And the reason I ended up in Russia was that um, after fi- finishing Stanford Business School, I thought, well, if my grandfather was the biggest communist in America and, and, and I graduated uh, Stanford in 1989, which was the year the Berlin Wall came down, yeah, yeah. I thought, well, I'm going to become the biggest capitalist in Eastern <laughs> Europe. So, <laughs> Was but, that some kind of revolt against your grandfather? Well, going to becoming a capitalist was, and, yeah. and going to Russia was just seem, it just seemed like this really interesting and kind of opposite mirror of my grandfather's yeah, life. Yeah, yeah. And, and, But your father was a mathematician, right? So my father um, and his two brothers were mathematicians. My grandmother, my, so my, my grandfather met um, uh, my grandmother in, in Russia. She was a Russian, uh-huh. a Russian Jewish intellectual. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you were a Russian Jewish intellectual, um, the highest calling was science. Mm-hmm. Yes. And within science, the highest calling was theoretical science. An engineer or an applied scientist is much less prestigious than a physicist or a theoretical mathematician. And so, and she, like you, you've probably seen these these types of uh, stereotypes. And she made those boys study until there was like nothing left to study. And and so, my father, at the age of fourteen. He skipped high school and went straight to MIT, wow. uh, which is one of the yeah. best universities in America for science. He graduated at the age of 17, <laughs> with the year that most people, year before most people start university. Okay. And he went to Princeton. Um, when, uh, when was that? Uh, this was, so he was born in 1927 and uh, plus 14, so that gets you to 1941. Um, he must have been there at the same time as Einstein. Um, well, he was at, so he, at Princeton. So he ended up. Uh, he was at, at the Institute of Advanced Study yeah. in Princeton. Yeah. Um, I think at the same time as Einstein. Yeah, it yeah. must have, must have been. Yeah. And, and Kurt Gödel as well, the mathematician Kurt Gödel. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Cool. Um, <laughs> well, anyways, he gets, so he finishes MIT at 17. He goes to Princeton, um, and he has a PhD by the time he's 21 from Princeton. Mm. He goes to the Institute of Advanced Studies, which is uh, one of the great scientific institutions in the world. And it was a time when there was a big draft uh, going on in America. And uh, it was very easy to get out of the draft if you had a job in a university or whatever. You just needed to get your employer to sign a, a, a deferment letter saying that you needed you're in otherwise occupied. But the head of the Institute of Advanced Studies was um, a guy named J. Robert Oppenheim, who was um, the founder of the atomic bomb. And he was so, and there was such a red scare going on. So this was during the McCarthy era. There was such a scare about sort of communists that the last thing that uh, J. Robert Oppenheim wanted to do was sign a document 
for the son of the leader of the Communist Party because he didn't want to be somehow accused of being, uh, falsely accused of being a communist or a communist sympathizer. And so he refused to sign my father's um, draft deferment documents. As a result, my father was drafted. And um, they, they were very excited when they first got him. They said, wow, uh, uh, a smart guy. Let's stick him in army intelligence. And they stuck him in army intelligence for a week. And then somebody like, you know, they didn't have Google back then, but somebody had sort of made the connection that this is the, the son of the leader of the Communist Party. And they said, oh, my God, this guy's a security risk. Mm. And so they sent him to a gas station in Fort Bragg, North Carolina, where he pumped gas on a military base for three years with, with a Ph.D. in mathematics from Princeton. And, and, and after he finished, um, he started applying for jobs and nobody would give him a job. Not a single university would give him a job. Um, because they didn't want, nobody wanted to lose their federal grants from mm. the U.S. government. And then he applied for a job at Brandeis University, uh, which is where um, Eleanor Roosevelt was the chairman of the board of trustees. And uh, even though her husband had prosecuted uh, my grandfather, uh, she was a great uh, patriot and a, and a moral compass of America. And, and uh, she saw what was going on, and they wanted to reject him. And she said, this would be the most un-American thing we can do to reject a great scientist um, and, and deprive him of his profession. Mm -hmm. And so uh, she over overrode the uh, uh, decision of the board of trustees and um, rehabilitated my father. And he went on to become the uh, chairman of the mathematics department at the University of Chicago and ultimately went on to win the National Medal of Science um, for his accomplishments in mathematics under President Clinton. Wow. So he became a professor of mathematics? He was a professor for... Yeah, yeah. Are you also mathematically skilled, would you say? No, not at all. I, <laughs> I, I can barely um, add and subtract. <laughs> I was definitely the black sheep in the family. I didn't... My, my brother was also like my father. He, he skipped high school, went to the University of Chicago in physics, graduated when he was 17, etc. Mm -hmm. Same story. And so I was the dumb one in the family. And <laughs> <laughs> okay. But you, but you knew how to make some money. <laughs> well, in Russia, all you had to do is be able to um, divide the um, barrels of oil that the oil companies were sitting on by the valuation of the company. And um, they traded at like 20 cents per barrel and oil companies in the West traded at $20. And that's all you needed to know. <laughs> okay. Actually, remember, I've just been to Moscow once in my life and that was 1992. So it was extremely early, and it's, there was no structure of anything. That's my impression. Yeah. I was in the IT industry at that time, and I was invited by some IT entrepreneur who wanted to you know, create company. I never did anything there, but I was there for 10 days. <laughs> but I just remember it was like chaos. It was complete Wild West yeah. chaos. Mm. I mean, everything had been broken. The system had been broken. Yeah. Um, and it, it was chaos. It was also very exciting um, – as a business person, because everything was possible. There was no... Exactly, there, yeah. And nobody knew anything more than anybody else. I mean, you could show up there, and, and um, I showed up there in my 20s, and there's an expression in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. And, um, you know, I could be the biggest expert in the world because there was nobody with more expertise. And I remember that they were, they were <clears throat> at that time, very advanced on computer science. Uh, I, I visited a computer club in Moscow, for example, where they had built a, um, a network, a computer network, a local area network, and they had developed a game where you could move into each other's computers, you could build worlds and stuff like that. And I mean, that's 
That's a step. That's what my son is doing now, 12 years old. But I, this is 1992. It didn't exist commercially at all. Yeah, at that I mean, time. Uh, the Russians have always been the best scientists. Um, yeah, but there's never there's, there hasn't been any great rewards for most scientists in mm. Russia because the place was just so corrupt, and so mm. anybody who was who could get out of there. You know, went to Silicon Valley or whatever and did great yeah. things. I and mean, look, the um, one of the founders of Google was, was yeah, Russian. Exactly. Anyway, uh, when your lawyer was killed in prison, you devoted your life to this, and you managed to to implement a new law structure in many countries, the Mag- Magnitsky Act. Just explain for the listeners what is that? What is the Magnits- Magnits- I can't exp- <laughs> Magnitsky Act, right? Exactly. Yeah. Ma- Magnet and Ski. So Magnitsky. Uh, yeah, there you <laughs> okay, go. That's Perfect. Good. Thank you. <laughs> so the um, the Magnitsky Act, named after my lawyer Sergey Magnitsky, uh, is a piece of legislation um, which freezes assets and bans visas of the people who killed him and the people who do similar types of terrible things in Russia and around the world. This was my response to his murder. Um, I tried to get justice for him in Russia, and the Russian authorities completely stonewalled me. They circled the wagons. They gave promotions and state honors to the people who were most complicit. Uh, They even put Sergei on trial three years after they killed him in the first ever trial against a dead man in the history of Russia. Mm. And so I said, well, how can we get justice uh, in Russia if... um, uh, you know, if the, if the authorities are completely covering up. And, and I decided we couldn't. And, and so if we can't get justice in Russia, we need to get justice somewhere else. And I, then I said, well, how do we get justice outside of Russia? And the answer is that these people who killed Sergei killed him for $230 million. And they don't keep that money in, in Russia. They keep that money in the West. Mm-hmm. And we've all seen it. You know, in, in London, you can't swing a cat without hitting a Russian oligarch on King's Road and uh, Sloan, uh, off of Sloan Street, you know, in Belgravia, et cetera. I mean, it's these guys are buying villas and yachts and, and private banks and art and jewelry and all sorts of stuff. And and all these people, um, that's their weakness is that they keep they, they commit their crimes in Russia and then they keep their money offshore. Mm. And so I came up with this idea. Let's freeze their assets and not let them travel and I took this idea to a, um, uh, a Democratic senator in, uh, from Maryland named Benjamin Cardin and Republican senator from Arizona, John McCain. Yeah. And I told them the story of Sergei Magnitsky and what he did and what he discovered. And, and, they, uh, and I said, can we make a law, freeze their assets, ban the visas? And they said yes. And that became the Magnitsky Act. Mm-hmm. And it, uh, it went viral. It went viral in the United States. It passed the Senate 92 to 4. Uh, it passed the House of Representatives with 89%. It became a law on December 14th, 2012. Yeah. And then we knew we were really onto something when Putin reacted. Mm. He just went out of his mind. He was so angry. He was furious. He was huffing and puffing. And he banned the adoption of Russian orphans by American families in retaliation. So did he do this officially against this? Yeah. Okay. There, 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 I mean, it was like the next day. Uh-huh. And, and, and uh, the, the next day. Uh-huh. And, and um, it became clear. That, and he made it his single largest foreign policy priority in writing to repeal the Magnitsky Act. <laughs> and he's been running around the world, or not he, but all of his people running around the world trying to, re- trying to do that. And, and in, in fact, you may remember there was a famous meeting of a Russian in Trump Tower on June 9th, 2016. Mm. This was one of Putin's emissaries 
uh, a lawyer named Natalia Veselnitskaya. She worked for the government. And she was there meeting in Trump Tower with uh, Donald Trump Jr., Jared Kushner, and Paul Manafort, his son, his son-in-law, and his campaign manager, after he had been nominated but before he was elected president. And she said very specifically, and, and there's no debate about this, she said, if Donald Trump becomes president, can you repeal the Magnitsky Act? I mean, this is how important it was to them. Mm. Uh, now, thankfully, um, Donald Trump didn't repeal the Magnitsky Act. Why didn't he do that, do you think? It's, I, I know why he didn't do that, because he couldn't. Uh-huh. This was an act of Congress. Uh-huh. In order to repeal it, he would need to get Congress, 51% of Congress, to vote in favor of repealing it. Mm. Okay. And there's no way that was ever going to ever happen. It passed 92 to 4 mm. in the Senate. No way it was going to happen. And so he would have loved to have uh, mm. gotten rid of it. So is this the, the legislation that now is used against a lot of the oligarchs during the war? This is the legislation that was the, the template for what's being used. So the Magnitsky Act is specific for human rights abuse and kleptocracy. What's mm-hmm. being used against the war is a mirror to the Magnitsky Act, mm-hmm. the exact template. And this was the template. This had never been done before, but once we created it, and that's why Putin was so mad about it. He knew that this was going to be, you know, sort of mm. uh, cloned and morphed and so on. And so it's been used against election interference. It's been used against the invasion of Crimea. It's been used against the, uh, mm. the invasion of Ukraine. Um, it's now been used not just in Russia. It's been used against the Chinese officials who are involved in, in setting up concentration camps in Xinjiang. Mm. It's been used against... Uh, in Myanmar against the generals doing all this horrible stuff there. And so mm. it's, it's a, uh, uh, you know, it's, it was the new technology that it came from Sergei. Hmm. Interesting. Do you have any idea of sort of the, 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 the sum that has been frozen with the help of the Magnitsky Act since it was implemented? Well, what, what, what's the value of the Magnitsky Act is, goes beyond freezing the assets. So, The answer is no. I don't know how much has been frozen. But what I can say is that it's when when somebody gets put on the sanctions list, um, in addition to freezing the money in the United States, all over the world, every bank that does business with that person mm. also freezes their money. Why do they freeze their money? Because the banks don't want to be in violation of the U.S. Treasury sanctions. They don't want to get in trouble with the U.S. government. Mm. And so what happens is a person who gets on the Magnitsky list becomes a non-person sort of financially dead. Hmm. You can't operate anymore. Nobody will touch you. Hmm. Nobody, you're toxic. You're a leper. Hmm. And, and so what happens is these people all become sort of, you know, just worthless. Even if they have a lot of money, they can't access it anywhere. They can't spend it. They can't use their credit card. They can't um, tr- transact. They can't do anything because they are toxic. Mm, I see. Uh, I mean... I guess you couldn't really foresee what happened now with the war in Ukraine. Did you did you have any feeling that something like that would happen? I did not. No. Um, I, I know that Putin is a, a murderous bastard, mm. but I uh, I always thought that he was a clever murderous mm. bastard. And I've always known that Putin is not that powerful. His power comes from from our, us giving him that power. His country has got an economy that's the size of the state of New York. Mm-hmm. His military budget is about the same as the UK's military budget. And 
um, which is about 90% less than the U.S. military budget. And most importantly, um, 80% of his military budget gets stolen. So it's only 2% of the U.S. and 80% less than the U.K. And so he, he, there, was no, there's, there, was, there was no way that he could have a strong military, even though people thought so. And so I always thought to myself, this guy is just a blowhard. He's going around scaring everybody all the time and using whatever, whatever uh, power he has. So he threatens to cut off gas. Um, and so the Germans all cower and say, yes, sir, how high, you know, how high do you want me to jump, sir? Uh, but it, but I, I never thought that he would do something like this. And, it's, it's, um, and Putin is not, he's not, a, um, he's, he's not a, an impulsive guy or an irrational guy. And so he must have had a very strong motivation to do this. And the only thing I can imagine is that he's stolen so much money over such a long period of time that he felt really vulnerable that he was going to get overthrown at some point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and if you, it's not like you know, George Bush losing the election um, or whatever. You, know, you go back and you, uh, well, George Bush didn't lose the election. He, um, mm-hmm. he served two terms. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, go back to the Bush presidential library and paint. Mm. You know, there, there's no, um, there's no uh, uh, dignified way of doing that for Putin. No retreat for him. So he, he, if he if he is no longer president, he loses all the money he stole, and he's stolen a lot, billion, hundreds of billions. Mm. He goes to jail, and he probably dies. I'm thinking all these oligarchs that has got their assets frozen and their luxury lives sort of just vanishes, aren't they a risk for Putin? They might get him killed, you know, so they get their money back or at least some of the money. Uh, no. And, and, and the reason is because they're so scared of him, um, you can't even imagine. These guys are such little cowards when it comes to Putin. Mm-hmm. Somehow I can stand up to him, but, but you know— uh, a Russian oligarch is worth $15 billion that has all their money offshore, is afraid to peep a word. Such cowards. <laughs> okay. But I mean, still, I mean, if they, if they got rid of Putin, they could go back to at least some kind of luxury life that they had. Yeah, but the thing is, they can't get rid of Putin if they even think about it. You know, he's, he's got like, uh, you know, they're, they're all so paranoid. They think that, that he's got like electrodes in the house, like picking up their thought waves. Mm-hmm. That they, they don't want to think about it because mm-hmm. they're so scared of what... Uh, he would do to them. He's ruthless, and he is looking for disloyalty wherever he can find it. And anytime he finds it, you know they they find uh, themselves poisoned with Novichok or falling out of a yeah. fifth floor window or whatever. Because quite a few of the people that you've been working with these days have actually been killed, right? Murdered by him. Um, well, some of the people who have been on the campaign for justice have been killed. Boris Nemtsov was one of my allies. Yeah, he was a former deputy prime minister, and he was shot. Um, after working with me on the Magnitsky Act, he was shot uh, seven times in the back in front of the Kremlin as he's walking home from a dinner. Mm. Tell me, the, the, the war that now is taking place in Europe, does it change your plans for your work on these issues in any way? Well, I think that it accelerates my plans um, because now I have people who used to be trying to appease Putin that no longer feel that that's necessary. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had a really hard time. I mean, I, so I got the Magnitsky Act passed in the United States and then 34 other countries. But you can't imagine how much effort and, you know, s- clever tactical moves and, and you know, obsession, obsessive time spent it, it took to do that because everybody, there were so many people against me. 
not, not the Russians. I mean, the Russians, of course, were against me, but, mm-hmm. but all sorts of Westerners that just didn't want to rock the boat, that wanted to continue feeding at the Russian trough. Hmm. Okay, we actually have to end now because we're going on stage at Scala Teatern here in five minutes. <laughs> uh, uh, Bill Browder, thank you very much for being on the Fritanke podcast. Thank you. 